but you're as sick as your secrets and purge your secrets, get rid of them. And, uh, that is probably the best suggestion because get out of the silent battles, mold and toxicity happens in isolation and darkness. You know, uh, the, I, I have a painting on the wall in here that a gal that I dated who I ended up getting into recovery herself because we really found out that she was an addict and, uh, she painted the same, which is, uh, recovery or sobriety didn't open up the gates of heaven to let me in, but it sure did open up the gates of hell to let me out. That was Joe Polish, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today I am super excited to announce that we have Joe Polish joining us on the show. Joe, along with Hal Elrod and Anna David, are launching their first collaborative book effort called The Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery, and the official launch is June 22nd through the 25th. And on this interview, we take all sorts of twists and turns to discuss the same topic, recovery, and what that pathway has looked like for Joe. We're even going to touch a little bit on ibogaine and ayahuasca, as this has been a very hot topic over the last couple of months within the Share Recovery Network and other recovery networks. So brace yourself, folks, because Joe and I, we're all over the place on this one. But it is a fun, very informative interview. So sit back, grab a pen and paper, and prepare to take notes, because this one is chocked full of valuable information. So let's dive into Joe's story, but first, a quick message from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by the Share Recovery Community, a brand new exclusive paid membership to a secret Facebook group that features and focuses on multiple pathways of recovery. For $17 a month, you get live online recovery meetings, an exclusive online membership, and collective community support. The meetings are live, in-person, and face-to-face. The only thing you can't do is hold hands or get hugs after the meeting. If you can't make it to the local recovery meetings in your area, or if you're looking for meetings that offer different pathways, options, modalities, or formats, and those meetings are not available in your area, or if you've lost interest in the local meetings that you're currently attending, then the Share Recovery Community is the perfect place for you. At $17 a month, it's the best investment in your recovery that you can find anywhere on the internet. So for more information about the Share Recovery community, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. Go to the top of the website, click on the button that says Share Recovery Community, or on the banner that says Share Recovery Community, and join us today. Picture this. You're at work or your office or running your business and you feel confident, fulfilled, successful. Now, imagine this, going home after work and feeling safe, comfortable, and relaxed. And now, imagine being with your family and feeling happiness, joy, and love. Now, how does that sound to you? How does that make you feel? Now imagine that every single day you feel confident, successful, 
fulfilled, safe, comfortable, relaxed, happiness, joy, and love. Can you picture it? Can you imagine what that would feel like? Of course you can. My name is Omar Pinto, and if you're listening to this right now and saying to yourself, that's the life I want for me, then go to www.sharespace.net right now and schedule a free consultation with me today. ShareSpace, it's time to believe in yourself again. And if you'd like to contribute to the Share podcast by putting a dollar in the virtual basket, then go to www.thesharepodcast.com, go to the top right corner of the page, and click on the button that says Donate, and drop a dollar in the basket today. And if you'd like to access another free resource as powerful or even more powerful than the Share Podcast, then join us in the Share Recovery Network. It is our free private Facebook group that is active 24-7 from people all over the world. If you're seeking recovery, then go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, Recovery Network, and join this free recovery resource today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, this next one comes from Evolving Opal. Title is Saving My Sobriety and Keeps Me Growing. This review is beyond overdue. I started listening to the Share Podcast a little over a year ago. I was in my last year of nursing school, dealing with some expanded family issues and stressed out. I stumbled across the Share Podcast, and I truly believe it saved me from going back out. Each episode helped me. As I listened to the stories of others, I remember what life had been like before I got sober, and I was reminded of the toolkit that laid at my feet waiting to be picked up. I read and participate in the private Facebook group often. I started calling my sponsor more and going to meetings. I began to incorporate recovery back into my daily routine and took steps to to keep growing in my recovery. That's the long story. The short story is that this podcast makes me laugh and cry and smile, sometimes all at once, and always to the benefit of my sobriety. Thanks, so. Wow, another heartwarming, touching review that just blows my mind and gives me so much to be grateful for. The Share Podcast, the Share Recovery Network, and now the brand new Share Recovery Community that allows anyone and everyone seeking recovery an opportunity to recover. Thanks again, Evolving Opal and HP, baby. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Omar. How are you doing? Dude, I am excited. I am excited to have you on the show, man. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Great. Glad to be here. All right, folks, we have a real big treat today. We've got Joe Polish joining us on the show. Um, Very interesting backstory on this one. So um, I was on this yacht, which is going to sound a little pretentious, but so what? I was on this yacht with my coach, Tony Grebmeyer, and I met 
Brad Weimert, and we were talking, he was asking, we were doing, you know, you do the network thing, and you know, you start going back and forth about what you do, and that kind of a thing, and I told him about the podcast, and he goes, dude, you have to do a video with me, tell me, just explain what you do on the video, I said, all right, right, and we're going to send it to my buddy Joe, I said, okay, all right, whatever, so we do this little video, and within seconds after I send this video off, I get a message from Anna David who says, how do you know Brad Weimert? He just got a, my, my friend Joe just got a, a, a video of you and him together talking about recovery. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiny, small world. And next thing you know, I'm chatting with Joe Polish of the Genius Network. And I was like, this is too much. So, I mean, I was, this is where like, destiny and like serendipity it, you know kind of meets right joe right <laughs> yeah, that was funny and of course you know I, I have to reach out to anna because she knows she's my co-author in our new upcoming recovery book and uh you know she just knows everyone so of course i wanted to say hey what are your thoughts and so she responded back very favorably and yeah then it led to us connecting and yeah here we go here we go here we go so for those of you who don't know, Joe Polish is joining us today on the Share Podcast, and he is the founder and president of Piranha. Is it Piranha Marketing? Piranha Marketing. Piranha Marketing. <laughs> many, many years. <laughs> yeah. He is also the creator of Genius Network. This is how I know him. The interview series, founder of Genius Network, aka the 25K Group, and co-founder of 10xtalk.com and ilovemarketing.com, two highly popular podcasts on iTunes. Joe focuses his entrepreneurial interests on value creation, connection, and contribution. His marketing expertise has been utilized to build thousands of businesses and has generated hundreds of millions for his clients ranging from large corporations to small family-owned businesses. But today, we're not here to talk about Joe, the entrepreneurial rock star. We're here to discuss his journey of recovery. Sound about right, Joe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah, ask me anything you want about anything related <laughs> to recovery, and I'll do my best to share what will be hopefully helpful. All right, good, right. Well, with that little bit of a backstory, um, basically... That's the whole idea, right? It's to give people hope, right? And no matter where you're at and no matter what rabbit hole you've climbed down into, you know, when you plug into recovery, you can find your way out. So before we dive too far into it, tell us, and this is going to be, this should be interesting. What does your normal daily routine look like, Joe, including recovery? Well, you know, I, I just finished writing with Anna David and Hal Elrod a, a book called The the Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery, which is coming out uh, very soon. And it'll be out in a few weeks. And basically, you know, it's, we go over like a lot of the morning rituals, one, you know, waking up early, uh, which doesn't work for everyone, but it, it is a great thing for a lot of people. For me, my actual morning rituals, uh, they're never exactly the same. What is typically common though is doing TM meditation. So I got trained in transcendental meditation back in 2013. So on most days, I meditate. When I say most days, I don't do it, do it all the time. Sometimes I, you know, am traveling. Sometimes I stayed up too late. Sometimes I'm too pressed with my schedule. Uh, but for the most part, I am more on than off in terms of meditation. So, uh, and doing it twice a day, 20 minutes twice a day is the best. Some days I can only do it one day. Some days I don't do it at all. 
Uh, but for the most part, I'm, I'm doing that about 80% of the time I'm meditating, uh, usually first thing in the morning. Another thing that I do, which uh, is burpees. Uh, I'm a big fan of doing between 30 to 50 burpees every day. The last couple of months uh, have been less burpees than the previous six months, but I went, I, I literally went about five months where I did at least a minimum of 30 burpees every single day. Maybe go to the restroom first, uh, <laughs> brush teeth, but then do burpees, right? Uh, and I've gotten a lot of people to, to do burpees. And the reason is you want to kick your body into gear. Uh, it, it, it wakes your ass up. It's, uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult. And so I recommend to people, you know, maybe start with one burpee, then two the next day, then three the next day, because right off the bat, unless you're in pretty good physical shape, uh, doing 30 burpees for anyone is extremely difficult. And if someone doesn't know what a burpee is, just do a Google search. You can watch all kinds of videos on how to do burpees. Uh, and it's one of the most efficient, effective exercises, especially if you're traveling. You can get a really hardcore cardio workout in like two minutes. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's difficult, uh, but it's, it's good. Uh, also, drinking water. I have not had a drop of caffeine since September 2016. And I've eaten sugar maybe 15, 16 times since September 2016. So I'm, uh, if I have any sort of wow. sweet stuff, it's fruits, uh, occasionally like Manuka honey. Uh, so I'm a very clean eater. I'm mostly, if you, you know, I don't have an exact type of eating, but I'm, I'm mostly grain free and uh, paleo and try to eat the cleanest, most organic, healthiest foods that I can. And again, uh, you know, there's no perfect system when you travel. It's harder to get access sometimes to food, but I usually travel with food. Uh, but my, you know, and also sleep. I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a very good sleeper. Sleeper is still very challenging for me. Um, I, I just recently did a genetic test uh, which I had one of the top genetic interpreters in the world go over it. And I actually have uh, like a genetic predisposition to not be a very good sleeper. And I couldn't even begin to try to explain it effectively <laughs> here because I'll, I'll sound like a moron, but I just found this out like a week ago. So you know, we're, we're totally exploring that. Um, but I, uh, I do have a lot of text messages once I turn my phone on. So I have to sleep. Uh, uh, with my phone away from me. Yes. Um, if, it's, if it's near me, you know, if you're an addict, one of the biggest causations of, of addiction problems is, is aggravated by technology. And there's a ton of uh, internet addicts. Uh, and there's a lot of workaholics. Uh, and, you know, workaholism, of course, is a respectable addiction. So before I meditate, I don't turn on my phone, obviously. Uh, I keep it on airplane mode at night. And so when I uh, do turn on my phone, uh, what I'll do, what I have found, and I do this maybe two, three days a week, I will hop on an exercise bike and I will check my text messages while I'm riding the bike. And because I do so much communication with all my employees and my team and some of my clients and projects that I'm working on, I do a lot of audio and a lot of video. So people will get audio messages from me on my phone saying, hey, I'm breathing heavy right now because I'm riding my bike. <laughs> and, but what it allows me to do is it, you know, it'll, it'll actually, uh, you know, you can get a cardio workout in while you're having to check, check, uh, you know, check messages and stuff. So that, that's, that's my morning ritual. I mean, I, I journal at night, uh, kind of go over the, the, the day. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, gratitude lists and stuff that people have, you know, heard a million times, but those things are very important. And I have, a uh, I have a guy named Cameron Harold 
who we check in daily on what are the top three goals that we're going to do for the day. And he's kind of an accountability partner. Uh, and people could do this with, you know, their recovery with a sponsor or me and him do it basically on what we're going to do for the day. It's not related to recovery. Uh, although half my life now is spent in helping, you know, build artists for addicts and genius recovery and the, the different addiction projects that I spend my time uh, working on now, the platforms, but it's not my, you know, it's not my core business. It's my passion project to try to, you know, reduce suffering yes. for addicts as it relates to, you know, what I want to do, my moonshot, if you want to call it that, is to change the global conversation about how people view and treat addicts with compassion instead of judgment and to find the best forms of treatment that have efficacy and share those with the world. So I've been, you know, I've been uh, running around for about three years now with a camera cruise and we have our first documentary that's going to be showing at the Sedona Film Festival at the end of uh, May uh, for a movie called Black Star. And, uh, you know, so I've been recording a lot of research. So, uh, the other thing I'll, I'll do, um, in the morning is about four days a week, I will go to a personal trainer, usually around 9am and we'll work out, lift weights and, you know, do lunges and the guy kills me. And that's, uh, in a good, in a good way. And then two or three days a week, I do yoga, you know, Kundalini yoga is fantastic for recovery. My, you know, my buddy, Tommy Rosen, uh, he was just out here. Uh, we just did an interview on my fan page with him. Um, but you know, he's, I've gone through nine day yoga retreats with him doing Kundalini yoga and cause the issues are in the tissues. Yep. And so, you know, for, for, for addicts, you want to get into your body. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just meetings, although I'm a huge fan of community and meetings and 12 steps and, and all of that. And I'm happy to talk about all that, but you also have to look at food. You have to look at biochemical aspects of it, serotonin and dopamine. So what do you put in your body? What sort of foods, what sort of supplementation, uh, how much sleep are you getting? You got to look at the trauma, uh, because I believe that addiction is a response to trauma. So, you know, any sort of physical activity, uh, that can get you in, uh, you know, towards a flow state or even in a flow state is going to be incredibly helpful to the monkey mind, the, uh, the craving state of the, of the attic. And so I'm very big on breathing and meditation and anything that is somatic. So I do, you know, I do body work, uh, at least once or twice a week, you know, some sort of, um, you know, time massage or reflexology, you know, all those things are very helpful, but, you know, but I wake up though and, no day is ever the same thing. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, if people were to follow me around to try to get some pattern how to live, they would be like, what the hell is this guy doing? But I, I bumble my way through life just like everyone else, but I run a very successful company and interact with a lot of people. And fortunately, you know, uh, probably would have never been possible uh, if I um, had not been in recovery. And I was a very functional addict for many years, even became, you know, became a millionaire before the age of 30 while I was, you know, full blown acting out with work addiction and sex addiction and stuff like that. Luckily my drug doing uh, days were when I was much younger. Um, and I'll talk about that cause I know you'll ask me, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I mean that that's, that's, that's kind of like a little bit of my morning rituals, definitely waking up early, but getting enough sleep. You know, my whole thing is how do you solve one problem that can solve a hundred problems? How do you, so, you know, so people have all these problems in their life. But if you just got sober, 
you would like solve a hundred problems that someone who's not mm-hmm. sober has. If you, and sometimes it's like, well, where do I start? You know, well, if you got better sleep, you would have a lot of problems that are caused because you don't sleep enough. And so, or, you know, if you're not eating healthy foods, yep. you know, a lot of problems are exasperating, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, 70% or so of serotonin is made in the gut. And so you people, it's not just your, you know, your brain in your head, it's the brain in your body, the second brain. And so, you know, eating well, you know, guzzling coffee, smoking cigarettes, uh, eating crappy food, you know, a lot of the things that a lot of sugar, you know, one of the number one, the number one killers in the world of addiction, addictive substances is sugar. And then as far as I know, number two would be um, tobacco. Number three would be alcohol. Number four would be opiates. So there's, you know, there's a hierarchy of substances that not only are damaging, but kill people uh, depend on, on, on the use of them. And most of most addicts are consuming all of those together. What what's interesting is sugar's number one. Wow. Yeah, I learned that from Tommy Rosen. I mean, if you really look at all of the diseases and everything that you know, most people don't think about. Just uh, sugar's the gateway uh, for a lot of stuff. Now, yeah. and when I say gateway, my belief on addiction and there's different. I used to believe that addiction is a brain disease. Um, I'm not saying it isn't, but I lean more towards now that the cause of addiction is a response to trauma. It's repressed emotions and, you know, and I actually look at addiction as a solution, uh, which is hard for some people to grapple with because it's like a solution. It's, it's wrecking my life. It's destroying my life. But uh, if you sit and think about if you're lonely, if you're in pain, if you're in a halt state, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, um, taking a drug, drinking, doing a behavior, gambling, sex, internet, any, anything that's going to give you a dopamine hit, it, it immediately brings relief to that craving state. Uh, and it works temporarily. Problem is it has consequences and those consequences can wreck your life, destroy relationships, and in some cases kill you. So, but it, but it is, it is a solution. It is a solution temporarily. And so, you know, so the question, like my friend Gabor Mate says, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so to get to the underlying cause of the pain, then you can, you know, you can, be better equipped to, to deal with it. If you can at least recognize that you're not doing this stuff in many cases, cause you're a horrible person, you're just in pain. And so, yeah, no. And, and that's, that's a hundred percent true. Um, and a lot of the reasons why I launched the share podcast and a lot of the reasons why I launched the share recovery network, which is the private Facebook group is specifically to discuss recovery in every facet from every angle, all the pathways. If you've recovered in one way or another and you have, it's different from somebody else, then we all want to hear about it, right? Uh, free from judgment, free from the dogma, free from the stigma, right? So we've created a, a, um, a community that is, is very much welcoming and inclusive to being open-minded. And I think that the minute, the minute that you open the door to every possibility then real change is is possible because I think one of the things that you mentioned too is like you talk about your passion project, talking about removing the stigma um, with you know with compassion, to discussing addiction with compassion, not judgment. Correct. 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 And so yep. a lot of that in the twelve step community 
some of the some of the dogma from religion actually kind of passes over into the 12 steps, right? Where if you're not doing it our way, you're doing it the wrong way, right? And if you're not following a specific spiritual path, you're doing it the wrong way, right? And so, you know, sometimes you'll go to a meeting and it just almost feels like you're being judged, right? And it pushes people away. And so the idea is to embrace, right? If I haven't seen you in a month, it should be like, dude, it's so good to see you. Man, what's happening? What's going on? Like, wow, you still sober? Right. You know, I haven't seen you in a month. You still, you still sober? You still clean? Right? You know, you're not, I, you, you sponsoring anybody? You know, and so I, you know, I love the approach that you're going to. The other, other thing I was going to ask you too is I was like, damn, Joe, you look like you're in pretty damn good shape. How do you do it? <laughs> so after, after you explain the yeah. whole, <laughs> after you explain the whole gamut, it's like, of course you're in shape. <laughs> I've got a personal trainer four days a week. I'm doing yoga, right? I'm doing burpees. Like it's amazing, right? It's amazing that you can squeeze so much right in a week. Well, also too, I never uh, like growing up. My mother died when I was four years old. Uh, my father never remarried. Uh, I never ate healthy foods growing up because like most of our food was McDonald's, Arby's, Taco Bell, fast food, canned food, processed food. Uh, my father was a broken man. I mean, he tried to do the best he could, but he was hurt. He lost the love of his life. He never remarried. I was um, molested and raped as a kid. I was paid money not to say anything about it. I had a lot of pain. I was incredibly shy. Uh, you know, I ate, you know, ate shitty foods and uh, never, uh, you know, my liking for sports was ruined when I was about 10 years old because I was in a, a little league type baseball, uh, you know, uh, club at school. It wasn't yet little league in this school, but it was like it. And I had this coach that basically would force me to hold the baseball bat in a certain, uh, you would make me hold it straight up. And I literally, even if I leaned it back, I could hit the ball. But the way he forced me to hold it, I could not hit the ball. And I ended up just quitting the team because I couldn't hit the ball. The way that, and, and back then I was this shy, introverted, not, you know, kind of opinionated, you know, stand up for myself kind of adult that I was, you know, forced myself to learn to, to, to grow up into. Um, but, you know, this guy just like singled me out and was just, you know, an asshole. I mean, it, and, and he ruined, it ruined my liking of sports because I quit the, I quit the team and then all the kids started picking on me and beating me up because they like, you quit the team and, and it was like a catch 22. And this was all during the time that I was also getting molested. Uh, also during the time where I came home one day and my dad had given my only animal I ever had as a pet, a, a black Labrador retriever named Panther. I came home one day and my dog, my dad had just given my dog away for no reason. Oh. And, and it was just like this most traumatic time of my childhood, you know, for, for a young kid. I mean, I, I minimized all of it until later in life. I realized, well, yeah, I mean, that would, that would affect anyone negatively. So I never was into sports. I didn't like sports. So, you know, and then, you know, around the ages of, I think my first, you know, doing of drugs, I mean, I probably drank alcohol for the first time, 13, 14 years old, but I started getting high, you know, 15, 16 years old. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was, you know, getting smoking pot every day, snorting, you know, cocaine and crystal meth and taking speed and smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol. And, you know, my worst state when I was 18, I weighed uh, 105 pounds uh, from freebasing cocaine from three and a half months straight because I just, you know, was, was a total wreck. Uh, and so it's funny that later in life, I just turned 50 years old this year. Jeez, that I would, look fantastic. That, you know, well, no, no, thank you. You know, I mean, it's like, um, uh, because, 
there's a proverb that I heard, um, and I'm not sure I'm going to say it exactly right, but it's, uh, he who has their health has a thousand dreams. Uh, he who does not have their health has only one. And so the, the reason that I place such an emphasis on staying in good physical shape is the reason we're able to have dreams and ambitions and goals is because we're not laid up in a hospital bed. And when you've seen someone that is so physically sick or someone where addiction has just wrecked them so physically, there comes a point where it, you know it's very hard to switch that around. So when someone has an opportunity to really, you know, change your life and you can still have your vision and still use of your eyes and, you know, you can go to meetings and stuff. I mean, you know, that's all a starting point. You know, I'm going to assume that anyone that's watching this is, is going to be in a very bad place right now. Most people may not be, but when I say a bad place, maybe they're suicidal. Maybe they feel absolutely hopeless. Maybe they've tried everything they've been and they keep relapsing. Maybe, you know, their life situations financially, you know, intimately, they're lonely. They're, you know, I mean, the, all of those places uh, in different ways uh, I have been in or have, you know, worked with people that have been in those sort of situations. So there's all these ways of betterment and people underestimate just how resilient the human body is. But if you saw how wrecked I was, I mean, I would blow my nose when I was 18 and chunks of flesh would come out. Uh, you know, I, I ate, you know, freebasing cocaine, ate into the enamel of one of my bottom teeth and we had to have it, you know, basically a whole cap put on it because I just, you know, the, the cocaine rotted away the teeth. I remember when I was in that state, I tried to ride a bicycle around the block and I literally just riding a bike around the block, I could barely breathe. Mm -hmm. My lungs were wrecked. And, but you know, I mean, it's amazing how resilient the body is. If you start giving it good fuel, sleeping, giving it some recovery, I mean, it, it'll bounce back. I mean, it is, you know, I, I, I should be dead in many cases based on how, how far down I'd actually gone with drug addiction. So, um, now from what I, from what I understand, it was drugs and alcohol first and then yeah. it, it morphed into sex addiction or was it at the, was it at the same time or, you know, how, how is it, how is that, how is it separate or is it together or is it after the fact? Well, you know, I think it all kind of happened together, but it just didn't express itself in certain ways. The way that the behavior manifests itself, the way that, you know, one scratches the itch shows up in different ways. And and, and I, I believe that there's rarely uh, just, uh, you know, um, a pure alcoholic uh, or a pure sex addict or, you know, I mean, usually there's multiple addictions. And because if you're in pain or you're lonely or you're hurting or you're depressed, depressed, you're anxious you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting that to go away. It's just how the mechanism you use to scratch the itch. And so when you're itching, you're trying to scratch it with alcohol or with internet or with um, gambling or with gaming or with food or with power or with, you know, whatever, you know, there, there's many different ways. So uh, my first thing was drugs and alcohol. And I moved away from, I moved out of Arizona and went and lived in a trailer for two years uh, to get sober from uh, drugs and alcohol. Never went to 12-step meetings uh, in the beginning. Uh, just literally got away from the environment where I could not access the drugs. And, um, you know, for about six months, I was taking aspirin and Tylenol and just trying to even freaking eat, you know, uh, and 
because my body was just so wrecked and the withdrawals were fuck. I mean, they were just painful. And, uh, but you know, I gutted my way through it. Um, knowing now what I know then, I mean, I would have done a couple of other things to ease it, but, I, <laughs> uh, but you know what, thank God I, I just got away from the environment and I had, and that's a difficult thing. You, um, you know, there's a lot to, and, and well, let me, let me make a comment first and I'll t- kind of tell you like how, it, where it went into different forms of behavior, uh, is, um, you know, something that you said about, uh, 12-step groups where at some meetings they can become very dogmatic. You know, there's a line that you'll hear in 12-steps, which is take what you like and leave the rest. Yeah. And, you know, the founders in the, in the early, you know, the early founders of, you know, there's Dr. Bob and Bill W. that were the founders of AA. Uh, what was really great about that is, you know, they knew that a lot of defenses and a lot of ego and things would still eke its way into meetings. And yeah, some, you know, some things, uh, c- you know, just there are meetings that you'll go to that you just don't resonate with at all. And there's others you feel like I am at home, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot said about if you go to a meeting and you don't like it, that doesn't mean that meetings suck. It just means that either that meeting didn't resonate with you or you're just still not in a place yet where you're still kind of fighting it. So always, you know, one thing people have to understand about meetings too, though, is that I've never seen anyone that is truly an addict recover in isolation. So you have to find some form of community. And if it's not 12 steps, there's other, I mean, on geniusrecovery.com, we list every type of recovery group that, you know, for people that are atheists, for people that want, you know, refuge recovery for, you know, Buddhism or, you know, smart recovery. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of 12 steps and I like 12 steps because hope heals. And there are people there that will believe in you more than you believe in yourself. But what people have to understand is that they're not attendance groups, they're step groups. You go to meetings to get inspiration, you know, strength and hope and courage and inspiration and, um, you know, experience strength and hope, right? And you don't just go and sit in the meetings. There comes a point where you need to ask for help. Now, a lot of times people will just give it to you. I mean, the help is right there, but you need to, you need to go into it with the same sort of hunger that mm-hmm. you go after the addiction. Right. And now most people can never do that in the beginning. If it's 1% of the energy that you put into your recovery <laughs> that you put into getting, you know, cause here's the cool thing about addicts. You have to be a resourceful human in order to live a double life. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, addicts, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they're conniving. I mean, they come, I mean, they, they bullshit others, but they mostly bullshit themselves yeah. and they're really good at it. Right. And so part of it is like, you got to put the energy into it. But you know, if you, if you join a gym and you just like get a membership at a gym and you go and sit on the bench, you would never walk out of there and say, you know, gyms don't work. I mean, I, (laughs) I went there every day. I sat on the bench and I'm not strong. You know, you got to lift the weights. Well, like why do people go and say meetings don't work that have never done the steps? I mean, it's, what's the difference? It's like going to a 12 step meeting and, saying, you know, not doing anything other than sitting there and, you know, doing half measures and then saying meetings don't work. Well, yeah, I've, I've, even if someone, I've gone to many meetings and have walked out of meetings and have gone back into triggers and relapse and all that stuff. I mean, I've done that, especially in the area of, of sexual addiction, because it's way more complicated from my, me experiencing mm-hmm. it than was drugs or alcohol. Drugs or alcohol, it's like put a plug in the jug, you know, right. you know, when you 
thinking or whatever. But like, when do you know when you're going into fantasy thought? When do you know that this sort of interacting with a relationship is healthy or not healthy? I mean, that's why people that have process addictions or behavior addictions with things that you actually have to do, such as, you know, eat and you have a food addiction or try to be intimate and be sexual and interact with people. I mean, this is, you know, it's, those are, those are very complicated things. And so there are times where I would go to meetings and man, but you know, when you become a trusted servant, when you get a sponsor, when you sponsor others, when you make phone calls, when you do the steps, I mean, you just get better. And, and I've rarely seen anybody that is uh, struggling with addiction, no matter how severe that has not improved their lives by doing the steps. Yes. So, you know, Absolutely. you, yeah, you got, you, it, it depends on, you, you know, a lot of people just go shallow with things. And, um, if you're a deep addict, you need to go deep with recovery. Yeah, I agree. And, I agree. and, you know, and, and that's where you'll get the, the gifts. Of. So anyway, I, I kind of went on a rant there, but I, uh, I'll, I'll stop. It's here a good, it's you. a good rant. No, I, I can tell I'm going to have to kind of like try and jump in there. Right. Cause, cause you're a talker and, and I'm a talker. So I, I appreciate that. So, so. In that in that particular, one of my questions is that's why I was well. My lead up to that was how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date, right? But I, I that's why I asked. Well, is it how does the sex addiction and the drug addiction thing work, or do you have one clean date, or how does that work? Nah, I, I don't. I don't really. Uh, in terms of alcohol, it? It, well, in ter- like, here's 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 the thing about drugs and alcohol. It's been shit. Um, no, uh, it, it, to me at this point, I used to keep track of it. I don't keep track of it and haven't done so for years because I, I don't want to use it as a, as a tool to like, um, you know, measurement. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I, I feel the, the cravings being in recovery versus being recovered is when the, you know, when you're, uh, when, when you're in recovery and the cravings are really strong, you know, the white knuckling, you know, that's different than when the cravings have subsided and you go many, many days without, you know, having to, and I never thought, never thought there would ever be a time in my life where those cravings would go away, but that's now been a couple of years for me. I mean, so, um, so to go to drug, it's been, you know, maybe early twenties since the last time I did, um, you know, drugs, uh, which is different than, and this may be a little kind of controversial, for um, some people um, that are in recovery, so they need to take this as context. I've actually done plant medicines, so I've gone out of the country and I've done ibogaine, which is one of the most you know effective ways for some people that have opiate addictions, which I've never had an opiate addiction, and I've done ayahuasca, and uh, those were done not for entertainment because nothing about it was no. entertaining or fun. No, uh, no, you know. And, and, and I actually f- took a film crew with me and filmed it. I'm the first person in the world to have before and after brain scans and serotonin and dopamine tests after doing uh, ibogaine. And uh, then I have, you know, Daniel Amen, who's scanned the brains of more addicts than anyone in the world. I have about five hours on video of him interpreting me before and after to actually explain what it what it did. You have to this my on brain. video? Oh yeah. The, Is it public? Not yet. It, okay. It's going to be one. It's going to be one of our documentaries and, you know, anyone that wants to, you know, we'll put that stuff up at geniusrecovery.com whenever we end up, you know, releasing those documentaries. But we're working on a whole series of stuff because I'm exploring all kinds of somatic therapy, flow pods, EMDR, you know, I mean, you name it, all kinds of crazy stuff. But so from entertainment or addictive use of drugs, it's been years. Uh, When it comes to sex, um, I have 
uh, different bottom lines that have changed, you know, pain for sex, uh, it's, it's been a few years. Uh, when it comes to, you know, um, flirting or certain types of ways in relationships, I, I mean, I am at the healthiest state in my entire adult life in terms of how I feel and how I do relationships. Uh, I'm, man, incredibly open about it. I'm one of the first few people I know that is openly talks about sexual addiction and about pain for sex and about, you know, that sort of uh, stuff. Um, but it's very, it's very hard for me to say this would, you know, cause everyone has a different, um, you know, like I subscribe mostly, you know, there's, there's different sort of, um, 12 step groups for there's, you know, SA, which is, uh, you know, uh, sexaholic, uh, sexaholics anonymous, which is pretty much, you know, confined to being in a married committed mm-hmm. relationship. You know, that's not my world. I've never been married. Uh, then there's, you know, sex and love addicts, anonymous, se- sexual compulsivity, anonymous. And then there's uh, you know, sex addicts, anonymous, where you create your, you know, bottom line and you, you, you know, you're going to create what are bottom line behaviors for you. And everyone's different, you know, um, porn for some people is not on their bottom line. Other people, it's going to be porn. Some it's, you know, whatever, however someone acts out sexually, but I'll, I'll say this so people understand it. Cause if someone understands sexual addiction, it's easier to talk to them than someone that just hears it for the first time. The weird thing about sexual addiction is it is um, it, there's, there's a lot of judgment that, that comes with it. I could talk about, you know, I could talk about doing drugs and, you know, challenges I had as, as a drug addict for years and, uh, it wasn't until, you know, three years ago where I actually really started publicly using my platform uh, that, you know, was built in business with talking about uh, recovery. And, and it was really hard to, you know, talk about sexual addiction because there's so much shame attached with it. And there's a lot, there's more judgment with it than any other type of addiction yes. that, you know, I've, I've, I've ever seen. And, what I, what I realized though, is you're as sick as your secrets. And if you have these secrets inside of you, they will eat you up, which is why meetings are so important. Why community is so important to just purge that out of your system. It helps you unlearn the things that you have learned to try to, 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 to cope with life. And, um, there was a, there was a, my favorite definition of intimacy was given to me by a, a guy who devotes his life to sponsoring people with sexual addiction and he defined intimacy for me and i'll just share with you what what that definition is so he said intimacy is a mutual exploration of a shared safe place abuse is anything that takes away the safe place and addictions are what we do to make ourselves feel good when we don't have a safe place so if you were ever raped or molested or traumatized or abandoned then you have um an interaction with intimacy or sex uh, that could be very dysfunctional or very hard for you to ever feel safe. And, and sexual addiction, when people hear it that don't understand it, a lot of times they make jokes about it. Or hey, if I could have any addiction, I'd want that one. It's like, you know, there's suffering in every sort of addiction. You have no idea how stupid a comment like that actually is. Um, but people that, that don't understand it will think, oh, it means you must be a pervert or you just want to sleep with a ton of people. And some, sometimes that's the case. You know, that's a, another form of sexual addiction was sexual anorexia, where you actually cannot be intimate. You cannot be sexual because there's fear or there's danger attached. So a lot of my world is the way that I was introduced to sex, not having a mother, uh, being raped, being molested. There was tremendous shame being paid for it, that sex was 
not an intimate act of love and oneness. It's something that you do to get off. And, you know, so later in life, paying for sex was part of my arousal template. When you, you know, when you're hurt, you, it, but there's some sort of like triggering or stimulation attached to it, you know, or a trauma bond, it can manifest later in life in very dysfunctional ways. So that's why you'll see, you know, women that are in abusive relationships with, with uh, some men that, you know, will verbally or physically abuse them or beat them or even rape them within the context of the relationship. It's like, how did they get in those relationships? And if you just look at people's lives, it actually makes sense where that arousal template took place. I mean, I did an hour and 45 minute interview with Patrick Carnes, you know, who's considered the top sex addiction doctor in the world on YouTube. Anyone could watch that by typing in my name and Pat Carnes into YouTube. Uh, but, you know, we talk about arousal templates. I did that interview years ago. Um, but the thing is, so for me, you know, uh, I was just introduced to, to um, sexuality in a very toxic, very dysfunctional way. So I didn't know how to pick partners. I didn't know how to do relationships. So part of my bottom lines have been don't go into unhealthy relationships. And if I find myself dating someone who is clearly toxic or not a good relationship, that's, you know, that's a form of, you know, not being quote unquote, sexually sober. So I've had to work through a lot of that stuff over, uh, over the years. And, uh, so, you know, I'm not militant about it though. I don't, I don't, uh, addicts beat themselves up a lot. Yes. And the yes. last thing you want, you want to do is, you know, give yourself more reason to shame and guilt yourself because that just, you know, that, so, you know, I don't know if that answered the question, but I just, that, that was a lot of yeah. commentary. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and well, the, the main one was just like, when's your anniversary date? The the idea was to talk about, you know, the sobriety date. We know that you've been clean from drugs and alcohol now for close to 30 years, right? Um, the sex addiction is is really what the next phase was. And, you know, food, I always assume that food addiction and, and sex addiction are two elements where you have to constantly be, you know, you know, adjusting what it, what it is my bottom line and what is, what is, what is, um, being clean, you know what I mean? Cause yeah. it's very similar. You got to eat, you know, and, and, and for many of us, you got to have sex. Right. So, so well, and I, you know, I, I, so I had, I had an episode of how I acted out in a very unhealthy way. I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't, you know, I didn't go into my deep bottom line behaviors, but I definitely, uh, went uh, very, you know, I was very triggered and I was definitely playing with snakes about two years ago after I had a breakup of a relationship and I was very kind of grief stricken. And so the way I responded to it was, you know, I hurt myself, uh, but you know, not, not physically, but I just, you know, just went into a really dark place, but you know, that's nature's way to me of saying, um, wake the hell up. Even yep. if, even if it's a, uh, even if it's a tricky play on your mind, uh, I, I tend to follow the philosophy that life does not happen to you. It happens for you. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I, when something like that happens or I've, you know, I'm like, okay, what, what, you know, you're either winning or you're uh, learning. Yeah. And so, and one of the things too is as, at least for me, uh, one of the questions that I ask is about your spiritual condition, right? Because for me, I, I was I was pretty much spiritually vacant when I came into the rooms, and I had a I had a tough time 
uh, connecting on that level just because of my religious background, right? But it is the most important aspect of my recovery today, my spirituality. I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. So I asked my, my, my guests, you know, what, what does your spiritual condition look like and how do you maintain that that spiritual condition on a, on a daily basis or on whatever basis? Yeah, I, I tend to not talk about God uh, too much simply because it's such a charged word for so many people and a lot of people in early recovery. I mean, now 12 steps, very much you're going to hear talk about God. It doesn't bother me, and I know how to uh, make it interact with my own form of higher power and my own form of uh, you know connection. But I, you know, I believe that the uh, opposite of, uh, of addiction um, you know, is connection. And so how I interact with spirituality, what, what that kind of means to me is just staying connected, connected with myself, connected with other people. Uh, have I prayed a lot? Yeah. I mean, hell, I, I was raised Catholic. Uh, my mother was a former nun. Uh, my mother left the convent because she had gotten ill. And so she, uh, you know, uh, she died when I was four, unfortunately. She was a great woman. She wrote, you know, some of the first books teaching children how to read using you know, the phonetic method. So my books, uh, my mother's books have taught millions of kids how to read. Um, but I, you know, I had a very bad upbringing in organized religion. It was very scary. There was a lot of bad stuff that happened uh, in, in, in my world. But, you know, for me, the thing that, re- you know, I'm, I'm less of a religion, per- you know, I, I like the line that um, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people that have already been there. So, um, oh, yeah. but you know, if, 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 if what, if what it does teaches kindness and compassion, then whatever works for somebody, I'm, uh, what's funny is, you know, when you're talking about judgment, uh, if there's anything, let's just take, you know, Christianity. I mean, I think there's like 2,200 or something different versions of Christianity. And a lot of them are arguing over which version is right. <laughs> if you were to just like, look at what, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> Kindness and compassion, you, you would hope, right? So whatever is going to make you more kind and compassionate, wherever you, you know, uh, the founders of uh, AA, I think it's Bill W. said, um, is alcoholics were trying to drink God out of a bottle. <laughs> and so it's an interesting line because, you know, a sex addict's trying to masturbate their way to God, look at porn, have sex, voyeur their way to God, a gambling addict, gambling the way a food addict, a gaming addict, a power addict. I mean, we're, we're trying to connect with this source, connect with this something or other. And so addicts are actually the most potentially spiritual people that exist, but potential means you just haven't done it yet. So the, the, the question is, how do you connect with something? So if you, like a lot of addicts, you know, who have prayed, who grew up really were abused in religious environments, who were with people that used that to manipulate them, have a really hard time with mm-hmm. the whole concept. God. As a matter of fact, they, they not only disbelieve it, they can simultaneously say it's bullshit, but actually hate God in the process, mm-hmm. which they don't even understand what that even means. And so part of it is just, you know, it's acceptance. It's knowing that, you know, something cannot come from nothing. So even if you believe in God or you don't, something didn't come from nothing. And so whatever that means, if that means connecting with nature, if that means connecting with, uh, with a God, with a religion, if that means animals, if that means a group, like a 12-step group, if it means your children, it's, it's like what is more powerful? A higher power is what is beyond you because you are not the whole universe in the world. Um, to me, what connects me is getting into my body, 
uh, having gratitude, having laughter. Um, you know, do I pray? Yes, uh, but I don't even begin to try to attempt to explain who or what I pray to. I just pray to a source. I pray to an energy. And when I meditate, I very much, you know, can go in those uh, sort of states, but I never try to lord my belief system on anyone else because what the hell do I know? You know, I mean, if, if I, you know, if I actually knew, I'd, I'd explain it. So I also like the line, uh, you know, um, Lord, um, help me uh, search for the truth, but spare me the company of those that have already found it. And so, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, all, we're, yeah, we're all human. I mean, we're entitled to, you know, so as long as, you know, as long as you're, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're be- my objective is to increase my level of consciousness. Yeah. However I get there, and I know there's a lot of areas in my life where I'm still unconscious or I'm sleepwalking. And I just strive to, you know, connect with a, an, an energy, a source of power, call it God, call it whatever, that's going to help me uh, better that, you know. And I also, you know, uh, reserve um, how I tend to, you know, interpret someone. I, I just don't want to react to life if I want to be able to respond. And the more connected you are, the more you can respond. Like yoga is an example. You know, when I do yoga, it increases just slightly the space between me reacting to life mm. or responding to life. And if I can respond better, I tend to not screw shit up. And when I'm reacting, I get myself in trouble. I agree 100%. All right. So listen, Joe, this is where I turn, actually, about a half an hour ago is where I would have turned the show over to you. But uh, this has been a remarkable interview already in and of itself. But now what I want to do is I want to officially turn the show over to you, and I want you to share your story with us. You know, the battle you had with drugs and alcohol, with sex addiction, you know, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Joe, take it away. Well, you know, some of the things I've already covered. So, I mean, the the initial... um, um, traumas that that occurred as as a child you know mother uh dying when i was you know four years old Uh, my father never knowing how to respond uh so he would just every uh, one to two years my entire childhood we would move to to a new town a new place my father was a locksmith um but he was you know very much a workaholic because it kept him you know avoiding uh, the pain of of where his life was and so i was a shy you know, kid. And even when we just finally started to establish some relationships, he would uproot us and we would go to another place and I'd have to start all over again. So it was, it was a very scary, uh, sort of, uh, childhood. I have very few memories of it. It's really, it's really interesting how much my brain has blocked out. Uh, I also, uh, not that I don't dream because I believe everyone dreams, but I can count on one hand fragments of dreams my entire life. So I don't remember uh, I don't remember dreams, uh, you know, after maybe I'll wake up and, but then they quickly, the memories is quickly dissipate. I've actually met a guy who has a big business on lucid dreaming. Who's been trying to help me uncover some of the stuff as it relates to dreams. Um, yeah, I do all kinds of weird shit. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) but so, so the thing with, uh, you know, growing up, you know, moved a lot. And so that's where, and then all of these other experiences that were, you know, negative kind of led to what ended up becoming the coping mechanism of, you know, so I first started heavily smoking marijuana at 16 years old. Uh, I 
um, you know, would even keep a bong in my locker. Uh, back in those days, you could kind of hide it. Today, it'd probably be much harder to do that. Um, but I, you know, I went to high school and was pretty much stoned daily, uh, starting in my sophomore year. That's really when it got, uh, you know, end of sophomore year. And then junior and senior year, I mean, I was high every damn day. And what's really interesting about it is I went from the shy, introverted, scared kid to becoming one of the most popular people in my high school simply because I partied. But what it was doing is it had done something to the dopamine, the, the trauma and the, the way that I interacted with life, it opened me up. And so for a period of time, it was incredible. But it goes back to the, you know, the whole line, one line is too much and the longest line is never enough. I didn't have a shutoff switch. So, you know, if there was a way to, you know, get high and not have these things called consequences, it would have, uh, you know, would have worked great. And there were some, there were some incredibly fun, enjoyable times, which I think, you know, a lot of people in recovery only talk about the horrors of addiction. It's like, yeah, I mean, in its worst state, addiction is freaking terrible. You know, I mean, it, it consumes your whole life. I mean, I got to a point where I, you know, I would wake up to get high and I'd get high to go to bed. And so, uh, prior to that though, before I got to that state though, I became popular. I started feeling okay in the world. I started feeling safe. Um, but, uh, alas, it wasn't real. It was numbed. It was artificial. But what it taught me though, is that your brain can get in those states. The question is, how can you, you know, everyone who's struggling with addiction right now and feels that they can't cope without the thing, but they do something that helps them cope. Well, then you actually can cope, mm -hmm. but you think the drugs are what is what is making it happen and you can't do it without it. The only usefulness to pull from that is that you can actually be there. You can feel a certain way, but it's all biochemical. So what do you need to do with your body, with food, with natural ways to get you to into a balanced biochemical state with have, without having to consume poison in order to do it? Because that's what anything that's destroying you or is slowing your boat down is poison. And, you know, the, the, the challenge with the, you know, the attic mind is it doesn't seek harmony, it seeks chaos. So how can you, you know, how can you uh, train your brain uh, if you, you know, although it's way beyond the brain, it's the body, I mean, you know, the brain only pays one part of like being an addict. It's like, you know, knowing that you can feel a certain way or get in a certain way is evidence that you can feel better. So how do you need to set up your life? How do you, that should be the goal of recovery is to get in these states without having to yes. damage yourself in order to do it. So, you know, my story became smoking pot every day, then playing around with speed. And of course, once you start doing drugs, you tend to find other people in environments that support that behavior. So birds of a feather flock together. So I actually got to a point where I, I literally, when I was like in my worst state of doing drugs, I actually believed that every person on the planet got high every day. I was like, how, yep. how does someone I remember that? <laughs> you know, like, 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 wow, this person doesn't like, God, I feel so good when I'm high. I mean, how could you not want this? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, what, what I didn't realize is it's not that I felt so good when I was high. I felt so shitty when I wasn't, mm. I, you know, I convinced myself that, Oh, getting high is what made you feel better. No, like no. That. 
getting high is actually what made you feel better temporarily, but only made you feel worse. Cause you know, it's, you've probably heard of the addiction cycle. You know, the addiction cycle starts with preoccupation where you're thinking about it. Then there's ritualization where you build rituals and mm-hmm. where you drive, where you go and how you hang out. And then there's the compulsive act, which could be the drug doing the sex, the gambling, the gaming, the food, the whatever. And then that, you know, the money spending, I mean, there's, there's a million different, you know, the extreme sports. I mean, there's all kinds of addictions and uh, then it leads to despair. And in a state of despair, there's these wonderful, lovely, painful emotions called, they're not wonderful, lovely, I'm saying that sarcastically, called shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. And when you're in shame and guilt, one of the quickest ways to make the shame and guilt go away is to start thinking about it again. So you're in the preoccupation, ritualization, compulsivity, despair, then it starts over. And that's why people are in this addictive cycle because they do the stuff to feel better. The doing the stuff makes them feel like shit. Feeling like shit causes you to go into shame and guilt. You want to get out of shame and guilt, you start the whole damn party over again. And that's why people have a hard time. So you have to break that addictive cycle. And you're not going to do that with willpower. You're going to do that with community. You're going to do that with biochemical change. You're going to do that with trauma work. And you're going to do that with environment. And so you have to look at those four areas where, you know, community, where am I going to go to groups? What am I going to do in my body to build happy chemicals? You know, what am I going to do to fix my gut, the microbiome? How can I get my body to produce, you know, serotonin and dopamine and the right hormones uh, at, a, at a level where I'm not going to feel like shit? Uh, you know, what, what sort of trauma work do I have to jump into? And this is where it becomes tricky because it's like to get Joseph Campbell-ish here, you know, it's like the cave you feared to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And so some of the work that needs to be done is scary. It is confronting. It is painful. You have to disclose. You have to purge yourself of the, the secrets. But by doing so, the treasure that you seek, which is what you've been trying to artificially pursue by getting high, actually will come to you by not being addictive and then you know, building an environment where you're not constantly triggered. So anyway, so that was you know, a little sidestep there from my uh, story of uh, – doing, you know, so I was doing speed and I was doing, uh, drugs and I started doing psychedelics. And I remember one night, uh, when I was 18 years old, I, I was, uh, in a single day, I was drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, smoking pot, um, snorting Coke, snorting crystal, freebasing cocaine. And, and I was on acid all at the same time. And <laughs> Dude, like, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's, uh, but that's not, you know, like, you know, all that was, was an attempt to try to just scratch an itch that I mm-hmm. didn't know how. And it's just a maladaptive, very dysfunctional way. I mean, it's crazy, but you know, um, it makes sense when I look back at how I built it up to, I mean, no one just wakes up and and these people are like, you know, you, 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 you you want this or you wouldn't be doing it or you want to, it's like, there's not a single addict that wants to be out of control and craving shit that they can't control. I mean, it's, you know, all these people, that's why, you know, the criminal justice system is treating addicts right now. And it needs to be a more compassionate industry because one of my lines is you cannot punish the pain out of people. You're never going to punish the pain out of people. And that's why addicts, when you hear things like be gentle, they, it's hard for an addict to be gentle. Fuck that. You know, I'm not going to be gentle. It's like, well, you think you're going to punish the pain out of yourself? You think you're going to beat yourself into like behaviors that work? I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, um, you got to connect. You got to connect with, you got to be your own best friend. You got to care about yourself and, and all that. So 
I, uh, I got into a really bad state. I mean, uh, and one day I was uh, living in, a in an apartment in Mesa, Arizona. And, uh, there was a guy that, um, you know, was living with uh, me and, um, you know, my older brother and, uh, we we're all doing drugs. And, uh, he, uh, I remember, uh, one day he literally comes home. I'm, I'm on the floor watching TV with a friend of mine, uh, in this apartment. This guy busts through the front door. Like, you know, he lives there, but he fucking just rams in the front door with the literally a can of lighter fluid in this crazy state and just starts spraying lighter fluid all over the freaking living room, all over me, my friend. I mean, it happened in a matter of seconds, screaming hysterically. And like, literally I have lighter fluid dripping off my forehead. Dude. And he's like, has a lighter and he holds a lighter up and he has it lit. And he's like, I'm going to fucking burn this place down. And I'm sitting there talking the guy down, like put the lighter down, you know? Like this guy's ready to torch the place. And I'm like, I'm like, we're going to freaking die here. And, you know, I did talk to him, you know, put the lighter down and everything. The guy's just losing his shit because he's just like, you know, a crazy addict. And at that point I was like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die. And so, and you know, at that time I would look at myself in the mirror and I, you know, I mean, on average, I weighed about 120 pounds during that time. When you're five foot 10 male, you know, that's pretty skinny. Uh, my worst state during that period of time, I went about a week, one, one week where I had not eaten anything for like several days and I had not slept and I went, I got down to 105 pounds. I mean, I was just totally distraught, but on average I weighed about 120 pounds. And so I was like, I literally got in this beat up Chevy love pickup truck and took all my shit that I could fit into it and literally drove, uh, to, uh, New Mexico and lived in a trailer for, um, you know, a couple years started, um, delivering newspapers as an adult, you know, in, in a pickup truck where you would deliver it by vehicle. And then I ended up uh, getting a job selling gym memberships at a, a health club called Tom Young's Fitness, which I think is still there maybe to this day. And I uh, went to, New, you know, I started going to New Mexico State University and um, I basically uh, started selling gym memberships and I started lifting weights and working out and slowly but surely started, you know, getting my body back to gear. The first six months, like I mentioned, were extraordinarily painful. I was just going through withdrawal symptoms, not just physically. The physical uh, went away relatively quickly, but the mental withdrawals were just anguish and angst. And, uh, you know, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I started working out at this gym and just getting my body moving made such a big difference. And then I um, you know, it's funny too, cause I'm looking at, uh, when do I have to work out today, which is kind of, kind of funny. I have to, you know, meet a trainer in 45 minutes from now, which is great. Yeah. But, uh, I'm sitting there thinking about working out. I'm like, yeah. Cause I, I, today was one of those days where I actually, uh, you know, usually work out in the morning, but I switched it because of my schedule to, to 5 PM tonight. So but I work out every damn day. Uh, and so, we know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And so at the, uh, at, at this gym, I actually met someone that ran a mental hospital and he offered me a job and I ended up becoming a mental health tech. And so while I worked at this hospital, I would drive the patients to AA meetings and NA meetings that were, uh, addicts. And so I would sit in on all of those 12 step meetings as the driver for all of these people, never realizing later in life, how valuable 12 steps would become to me because Holy I never, shit. yeah, <laughs> I actually got clean. And then I started going to 12 step meetings, believe it or not. 
And so uh, from drugs. So when I went back to Arizona uh, from New Mexico, I ended up moving back to Arizona. I then got into a, uh, moved in with some friends that I knew from the past and they were dealing drugs and I wasn't. And I lived there for a short period of time and uh, you know, but I never, I never started doing drugs again. It was, it was kind of crazy. And um, you know, but what I didn't realize is that the real core addiction, which was sexual addiction, uh, was about to come later. And I ended up getting, you know, getting, I started a business, uh, dead broke carpet cleaner, living off credit cards. And I, you know, struggled for two years, went in about $30,000 in debt, trying to figure out how to make a service business work and worked my ass off, but I was in good physical shape. And I, you know, was clean and I was working out every day. And in spite of doing hard manual labor, I would still lift weights. And, um, you know, what happened is I ended up learning marketing because I needed to eat, I needed to survive, and I ended up getting really good at it. I ended up turning this small service business around, and um, I ended up, uh, I'm trying to, like, this whole story could take two hours, but I'm going to have to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. Um, but I, I ended up, um, my, my relationships early on were very toxic. I didn't know how to do relationships. I never really had... Um, you know, a girlfriend, uh, in high, I had one girlfriend in high school named Cindy. I won't mention her last name, but she, you know, ended up cheating on me. And, um, you know, every relationship I had, uh, for, you know, almost from the age of, let's see, I never even thought about this till now. I've never mentioned this before, uh, for about, you know, from high school all the way to about the, um, age of, 30 years old, every relationship I was in, there was infidelity um, on both sides. Um, but, the, but the difference with, uh, with me in the beginning is if I, like, if I was going to get into a relationship with a woman and I didn't want to be, you know, monogamous or just with that, I, I would be, I would say that I, w- I didn't lie about it. Cause I, most of my friends were, they had girlfriends, but they were cheating on them but not telling them, but then they would get really pissed if these women were, were cheating on them. And I was like, it's such a double standard and just the sheer hypocrisy of it all. And I, even at an early age, I saw the nonsense of how people try to rationalize their own behavior. And not that I'm any different in terms of, you know, right. name us, name my, my buddy, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote a book called the war of art. Great book. Everyone should read it. Um, you know, he, he talks about, you know, can you go through a whole day without a rationalization? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know everyone has their own ability to rationalize. But I, I ended up going out with a woman uh, and we were together for six years. We ended up we should have uh, split up after the first year because the first year was good. But the, the, the remaining five years were miserable. Uh, you know, either one of us knew how to do relationships well. Uh, either one of us were quote unquote faithful, even though I never, I even said in the beginning that I, you know, we're just dating and we just kind of fell into this weird relationship with terrible communication. And about three years into it, she actually had a real affair with somebody and I ended up staying with her. And um, I don't know why, but I was, I was broken and she was broken too. And, uh, we ended up, I was going to split up with her and she informed me over the phone when I was, you know, I left out a big piece. A big piece is when I was this Debro carpet cleaner, I learned marketing. Then I started teaching this method to other cleaners. Mm, okay. The largest trainer in the world to professional carpet and upholstery cleaners and people that did fire and flood restoration. And to this day, I still own that company, uh, Piranha Marketing. And, you know, it's, uh, but we, 
we basically, you know, over 9,000 cleaning companies all over the world became members of my group and my stuff worked. I transformed the lives of many people, created many millionaires in that business and, uh, and in service businesses in general and made myself very successful financially and had a great reputation, did a really great job and helped a lot of people. But my personal life was like a train wreck. And well, it, it wasn't a total train wreck until this happened. So right around in uh, October of 1997, uh, we had a child together, uh, me and this woman. We had stayed together because she had told me over the phone that she was pregnant. So I stayed with her and we had a child together. And to uh, make a long story very short, I won't go into the painful details because it literally, you know, I can start crying over yep. it because it was the most dramatic thing that ever happened to me. Uh, but five days before this child's first birthday, when I was in the process of pursuing sole custody with 50-50 visitation rights, I uh, found out through a DNA test that the father's rights group had recommended I take because it would help me if I ever had to go to court. I found out that I was not the biological father. Oh. And, yeah. And it, and it just was, it just hurt so bad. And I, I was in love with this child. I'd raised this child, uh, you know, for a year with, with her, uh, you know, even though we had separated about five months after the child was born because we just simply couldn't get along. But I was a, I was a great father and I really, you know, I love this child 20 times more than any woman I'd ever been with. And, uh, you know, and again, I, this is all coming back from a guy that had any, positive role models of what a relationship would look like. And, uh, um, I ended up finding out I was not the biological father. I offered to adopt the child. Uh, I even offered her a hundred grand if she would, um, sign away paternal rights and let me adopt the child, um, fully. And she wanted the money, but she didn't want to be without the child. And so there was nothing I could do. And the only thing that would uh, make the pain go away was to sexually act out. Uh, cause I wanted to connect. I, uh, but I was afraid of it. You know, I, and, you know, I mean, it, it, and there was so much betrayal and then I, you know, uh, turned my company over to a woman who, uh, you know, very interesting. She was a Jehovah witness and I'd confided in her and she, uh, you know, said, Oh, we can help you run the company. And, you know, uh, I moved my company to another state, uh, all the computer systems and she had a team and I find out about, you know, 10, 10 months into that relationship, I was looking at some financials and noticed vendors that I didn't recognize. And I did some searching, uh, called the secretary of state. And, uh, you know, back then, uh, Google didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we don't have the internet back. I mean, all this was when the internet didn't exist. We're watching VHS tapes and cassette tapes and stuff. And, um, you know, I, 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 well, although I had my first website in 1996, we still didn't have like really good search. Right. Then. So let me say that. So, uh, I find out that this woman is embezzling for me. And so I had and to she's Jehovah's my, witness. Yes. Yes. And a woman who would look me in the eyes and tell me that she loved me and that she knew what had happened to me. And like, wow, this, just a con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to know how how people rationalize and justify their behaviors. I'm sure, you know. I mean, I've never met a a, a person who's really done some really bad criminal shit that didn't have some rationalization. Yep. But no, I mean, she was she she uh, was stealing from me, and so uh, and that was after you know. So here I am, broken. You know, I went from being this hot shot young guy teaching people how to run their companies 
giving dispensing good advice, doing a great job consulting with high level people with their books and stuff, you know, important clients, you know, and my life had become a Jerry Springer show. And so um, I basically, then I got into another relationship with uh, a woman who um, literally was uh, just very toxic. And, uh, and, it, and so after three, like bad relationships, yeah. one the other in a short period of time in about a two year period. And, and I, I never, I didn't date this other woman. She was just running my company and, uh, you know, she was married, had kids and just, you know, but felt really justified in, you know, stealing money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, basically, uh, I said, you know, what the hell am I attracting into my life? So I joined a high profile group, uh, for people that struggle with, uh, with addictions and uh, here I was sitting in rooms with Academy Award-winning actors and actresses and famous NBA players, NFL players, politicians, musicians. And, you know, um, I saw some people that the world admires and looks up to, and I really realized how broken they were. And that started my journey of doing some, you know, serious uh, recovery. But it, I still bumbled around. You know, I, would, my, I ended up going to a 30-day rehab uh, center and... Uh, you know, and that was in 2003, I believe, 2003, 2004. Uh, the day I got out, I ended up acting out um, sexually. So I relapsed right away. That was painful. You know, you spend 30 grand in 30 days and then well, boom, you know, that's one of the problems I have with rehab centers too. It's not, they can do a really good job while you're in the bubble, but if the aftercare is not set up and you don't have a safe place to jump into, it can be a scary place. So um, then my father got uh, lung cancer, which was caused by um, addiction because he was a smoker, addicted to cigarettes. And, uh, you know, I was uh, after my father died, that led into acting out and going through some stages. And then towards, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, through the whole, you know, 2000s, uh, I was literally on a roller coaster, just a roller coaster of stuff. Uh, but then I really started just things started clicking um, more and I just started doing a lot more recovery work and a lot more therapy and a lot more trauma work. And, um, you know, then about in 2014, I uh, decided, um, and there's a lot I'm leaving out because I mean, I, you know, to put it in perspective, I spent about half a million dollars on recovery um, therapy Um you know, every type of seminar and thing you can imagine, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff, but I also probably spent that much on, uh, acting out <laughs> on all the crazy making that came along with it. Well, in all fairness, and so, you do you know, know a lot. All right. You have a very strong, very vast body of knowledge. So the 500 didn't go to waste. <laughs> yeah. At least I get to share it with other people now. Right. Yes. yes. And so, uh, it was all a setup. It was, but here's the thing. I tried to buy my way into sobriety by hiring the best experts in the world. And I actually used it in a lot of ways as a way to avoid doing the fucking work. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes the best recovery you can do is cost you nothing. Yep. In the basement of a church with people that are homeless yes. talking about you. You know, don't try to buy your way to God. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. You know, you can't hire, like Jim Rohn says, you can't hire someone to do your pushups for you. So, you know, there are certain things where, you know, but don't look at it as work because work sounds like, oh, I have to do all this work. It's like, you know, my friend Dave Kekich, who's paralyzed from the chest down in a wheelchair, he says, you know, life's easy if you live it the hard way and hard if you live it the easy way. 
and going to meetings and exercising and doing burpees and trying to eat, you know, not eating junk food, you know, that's, that's harder than eating potato chips and not having to exercise and drinking booze and eating shitty food and being an asshole and all that. But your life is so much harder. So life is easy when you live it the hard way and hard if you live it the easy way. And so I just started ramping it up. And one of the things that has helped me the most is literally publicly coming out and disclosing my shit uh, with the intention of letting people know you're not alone. You're not the only one that has these, these crazy feelings. That which seems most private is most public. The shit that you sit with and you think you're the only one in the world that's done this shameful stuff or has felt these feelings, everybody in some way, shape, or form has a silent battle that they're fighting. You can compare it and say theirs was worse than mine, mine was worse than theirs, but you know, fighting silent battles is why you see so like I, I created artists for addicts, artists with an S for addicts.com. And it, you know, our first painting was called Black Star, which is a tribute to all of these famous artists that we have died as a result of, uh, of addiction. And there are all kinds of people from Prince to Heath Ledger to Tom Petty from Chester at Lincoln Park, you know, that commit suicide, that were addicts that, uh, you know, and these people were fighting silent battles in spite of the fact that they have access to resources that the average person does not in terms of money, in terms of people, in terms of some have millions of adoring fans. Uh, and they literally die because they still the shame or the hopelessness is so great. And, 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 and I would never be one of these people that would have a commentary on, oh, you know, why did they commit suicide? They didn't, you know, it's like no one knows what was going through their minds. No one knows the desperation or the loss that they felt. What I do know is that they were fighting a silent battle in many cases because, you know, you look at the stories, a lot of people had no idea. They were alone. They were alone. Yeah. Isolation. Yeah. Totally. And so the thing is, is just what I'd love to see back when it was dangerous for an, an addict to, you know, say anything because you're going to get, you know, judged and ridiculed, which we still have that today. But we're in a place where I think now what used to be anonymous, I think the world's going to be better served if we just start outing ourselves. And I'd love to see liberals and conservatives, you know, because some of this shit needs to be political because so much race is when I say needs to be political, I, I don't really, I don't like politics. So it's not that what I mean is that there are laws where we are literally throwing people in prison. Uh, and many of these people, you know, are not dangerous people committing violent crimes. What they are is they're traumatized hurt people that are using substances and behaviors uh, to try, you know, like even with the sexual addiction stuff, you know, I mean, there's big push of trying to stop sex trafficking by being harder on prostitution sites and stuff. And what they don't realize is that prohibition doesn't work very well with alcohol or drugs or abortion or guns or with sex. And you try to make you try to start punishing people for behavior. You drive it. There's going to be more pimps. It's going to be more dangerous for the girls. It, you know, it creates more addiction. You may, the, the most violent times, you know, anyone that doubts this should read the book by Johan Hari, Chasing the Screen, you know, the first and last days of the war on drugs. I, I challenge anyone to read that book, no matter where they stand on the legalization issues and come to the conclusion that punitive approaches to, to drug addiction is, is useful. <laughs> it's not useful at all. 
And so right now we have, you know, a bunch of untrained people in addiction treating addicts, police officers, judges, you know, they have no training and, you know, and, and, and their role is to, is, is to, you know, arrest people. And, you know, and, and a lot of, I mean, I have many cops that are like, it's horrible that we have to arrest some of these addicts. You know, I mean, I just did a podcast for a, for, uh, you know, uh, called ER cast where I tell them I was one, I think one of the first people they've ever interviewed who's not a doctor and something like 50,000 physicians, emergency room physicians and nurses and people in the medical field listen to this podcast. And it's all about how to view addicts with compassion. Cause I have this dear friend named Dr. Jamie Hope who works in the ninth busiest hospital in the U S in Detroit and she's on the front line of seeing people in their worst states, broken, bloody, dying, uh, coming into the emergency room. So you're seeing, I mean, people punching her and lashing out at her, but she takes such a compassionate approach to these people because, you know, they're hurt. And people that are hurt hurt others. And if, and, you know, Gabor Mate says that if we wanted to create the perfect system to keep people addicted, we'd create the exact prison system we have in the United States. And so, you know, my whole thing is I just came out and started publicly talking about, you know, my addictions and, and about where I'm at, not because I have the answers, but I just want people to know you're not alone and that we all struggle with this stuff. And uh, even people that seemingly have their shit together may have silent battles. And, you know, I, I just want to reduce suffering. And so that's why, you know, that's why I talk about it. And that has helped me tremendously in my recovery. I mean, Talking to you right now about this stuff keeps me in it. Yes. And so in the same way that if you go to a meeting and you're a trusted servant and you talk or you sponsor someone, you're sharing your story. And through through that, you can help other people. And so I, I'd like to create an army of people that are willing to just come out and say, this is the shit I'm dealing with. You know, I'm human and, and I've got a lot of pain and I need help. And you know what? When you do that, people will want to help you. And they will reach out to help you. And, and, and that's the weird thing about 12 steps. It's mutual suffering where you're in the trenches with someone that's been through it with you, just trying to help each other out that you find that healing. And I think the world needs less anonymity right now and more outing of like, I'm dealing with this too. And here's what I'm doing about it. Or I don't know what I'm doing. I feel hopeless. I, I, I want to die. I don't want to exist. And through that, we can bring compassion because the first step is to change the global conversation about how people view and treat addicts with compassion instead of judgment, and then find the best forms of treatment that have efficacy and share those with the world. So I'm just trying to be a curator of what I found. So, you know, one of the questions you asked is like the Ibogaine. You know, I, I'm very careful about recommending plant medicines to people because it's not about the plant medicine. It's about the before during and after of the experience, the intention of going into it, do, being in a safe environment. There's a lot of people that are calling themselves shaman and, you know, experts that are dangerous. And you got to be, I mean, people can die from doing these sort of things in the wrong way. Yes. So, you know, so I'm, a, you know, if anyone wants to really follow stuff like maps.org, you know, multiple disciplinary. Uh, well, without, um, without, without recommending it, Joe, without recommending it. What happened afterwards? Did it change your neuromechanics? Did it change the neural pathways in your brain? Did you look at the world in a different way? Forget about the process. What about after? Yeah, all the above. And, and, and one thing I will say, someone described it like, uh, which perfectly described it, it was like going through hell on God's shoulders. So because I encountered what felt so scary 
the fear of death, the fear of, 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 of life that I had prior to that shifted. And I, and I changed my paradigm and I changed my perspective. And all of a sudden I had a hell of a lot more compassion for pain, uh, during not only Ibogaine, but even during the ayahuasca, I saw my, my mother in a hospital bed falling. Um, this woman who was next to me during the ayahuasca journey, like became my mother. And I, took on the emotions of the the horror and the pain and the sadness that my mother dying with, you know, two children, what it must have felt like for a 40 year old woman to die. And that made me a hell of a lot more loving, a lot more compassionate. And I didn't beat myself up as much. I didn't have this urge to go out and hurt myself as much as I had. And when I say hurt myself, like I never consciously said, Hey, let me go hurt myself today by, acting out or by, you know, doing something damaging. It was just, I was self-destructive. And like Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the guy that wrote the book Flow said, you know, the same neural pathways that an athlete, perform entertainer uses to get into a flow state are the same neural pathways that an addict uses to self-destruct. So we're using the same roads in our brain, if you want to look at it that way. It's not totally scientifically explained, but, you know, basically... It, it did shift the neural pathways, but it from a brain scan, it lowered some good parts and bad parts, though. But as far as I'm concerned, if you're a heroin addict and it somehow interrupts the addiction long mm-hmm. enough for you to see, because I don't, a lot of people call ibogaine a cure for and, and psilocybin or ayahuasca like a cure. Uh, I prefer the term addiction interrupter okay. where it'll interrupt it. And then during that period of time, you have a, like about a 90 day period with Ibogaine is what experts on it say. And, and this is all new. I mean, we're still learning a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, you, you change your environment, maybe change your job, get a circle of friends, you know, it'll give you a period to kind of, okay, now that you've sort of cleared the decks, how can you take on recovery stuff? But I've met people that have gone through, Seven, one guy, seven rehab centers, uh, very expensive, several hundred thousand dollars that his family had literally depleted all their money trying to help this guy uh, get clean from heroin. Every time he would go to a rehab center, get out, the cravings was always there. Never went away. He would always relapse. I met him after he did uh, a, a seven days in Mexico, cost him $7,000, uh, did two ibogaine journeys, which is gut-wrenching. Because one of them, I mean, it's, it's, believe me, there's nothing fun about it in my experience. It is intense. Yes. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he basically said, first time in my life, I don't have cravings. Mm, okay. So, you know, so what do you say about that? You know, I mean. It's not about judgment. It's just, it's information. Like your journey is, is, is just chock full of information more than the average Joe. So let yeah. me take a little bit from each part of your journey and see. What works for me? You got yeah, exactly, exactly. You know. Yeah, and that's that's what I hope. I hope take what you like and leave the rest. I mean, that's the same thing that of anything that I'm I'm saying. But yes. I, you know, I would, yeah, I would I would have people explore it, and you know, obviously, all the people that you're interviewing and all the things you're sharing. I mean, it's like everyone that they hear from you. You know, uh, give give yourself perspective, but know that the journey of recovery is not listening to stuff and intellectualizing it. You got to hear what someone says, say, let me try that on. Let mm-hmm. me go, you know, let me do the work. Let me get in community and, you know, get yourself sober because there's many gifts to it. 
All right. So, Joe, before we get into the, the closing questions, I want to know about how our listeners can, can get in touch with all your resources, list all the websites, the books, everything you've got recovery related, please. Yeah. Uh, GeniusRecovery.com is the best place to look at for videos, for resources, for uh, links to podcasts, to uh, meetings that uh, someone can attend. So that's a great place. There's a, there's a open letter to anyone struggling with addiction, which would be the best thing for someone to read. And it's just, if you're a family member, if you're an addict, it's just an open letter of here's how to think about addiction and here's where to start. And so that's on GeniusRecovery.com. And if someone wants to see what we're doing, uh, we have our uh, documentary that our first one, which will be out soon, Artists with an S, A-R-T-I-S-T-S, for F-O-R, Addicts, A-D-D-I-C-T-S, Addicts4Addicts.com. And they can watch the video trailer and see that. And that's where um, my re- recovery stuff uh, exists. And, and I, I, have a, I have a great interview with... Uh, Gabor Mate also on, uh, you know, Facebook and online that's been, you know, we, just on Facebook, it's been viewed over a million times. And I have a great 45 minute uh, interview with uh, Gabor, who's uh, wrote a great book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghost yep. that I highly recommend uh, anyone that's, uh, you know, struggling with addiction or wants to understand it, read that book. And the book coming up that you've got is with Hal Elrod, right? Yeah, Hal Elrod and uh, Anna, Anna David. David. Uh huh. And it's called the Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery. Okay, and that's coming out in. That'll be out June twenty fifth, uh, okay. two thousand and eighteen, this year. So uh, pre order that bad boy on Amazon. That'd be or you know, that'd be great. Okay, all right. I'll send you and your assistant an, an email just to get links to all this stuff. And I'll post it on the show notes. So, guys, this will all be posted on the show notes uh, for Joe on the Share Podcast. All right. Awesome. Um, one thing before I go into the closing questions, Joe, there was so much, so yeah. much, right? And all of it was was awesome, right? I just finished getting certified as um, NLP practitioner, Neuro Linguistic Programming and, and Hypnotherapy and Timeline Therapy, right? And <clears throat> a lot of what what you talk about, like it, there's so much congruency in that. One of the things I just had an interview last week where one of the guys was just, was abused. He was raped as a child, very much abused. And when he went to go get, when he went to get help, right, the therapist just reminded him, look, cause he was hurting a lot of people after the fact, this, this is a big kid. He looks like, like part of the Aryan race. Like he just walked out of the, the, the set of American history X and mm-hmm. just a beautiful story. And one of the things he said is like, I learned that I could I could give myself the the, the a break, right? I could I could give myself some grace. Yeah. Just recognizing the hurt people hurt people. Right. Right. And it was like it was so beautiful, right? And just the understanding that, you know, you, you go through so many tough experiences as a child. And then when you get to the end of the road, right, you realize hurt people hurt people. The people that were hurting you, God only knows the experiences that they have, right? Right. And then that takes you to a place that is nasty sometimes to protect yourself, to defend yourself, right? You learn to do what others have done to you just just for for protection. And and that is one of the things that it's I think that when we talk about addiction and we talk about that itch, right? 
it's just finding comfort, right? I need, I'm in pain, I am suffering, and this brings me comfort, right? And a lot of the times when I talk to people and my first sessions with them, when I go to coaching and we're talking about addiction, it's like, I want to stop, but I can't, right? I want to stop. I have all these consequences and I'm just, right? And I said, I said, there's a part of you that, and I call it the one drink, like in this case, it would be one drink Joe, right? And it's like, I know that you know what the consequences are, but tell me about that first drink, right? And that first drink, what it does is, it's like the minute I take that drink, I know that I'm going to feel, and I'm going to be able to disconnect from the pain, disconnect from feeling overwhelmed, disconnect from stress, right? And I can become, like you say, like I've got all this. I wrote this down. I even I put a box in it. You know, when I was drinking, I felt popular. I felt safe, right? Uh, your brain can get into the, and your brain can get into these states. And I remind them, I'm like, if you were able to do this when you were drinking, that's who you are. It, there's an, the, that authentic version of yourself is there. The alcohol is just allowing you to connect with that. Right, right. You know, and so that was, you know, just, just to make those two points, because I could make a lot more, because there was just great stuff in there, in, in no. there, Joe. And so, again, thank you so much for, for an amazing interview. Yeah, you're welcome. And, I, and anyone that's, uh, you know, that's out there that's feeling hopeless, like just the fact that you're listening to this and watching and you're reading and you're doing, see, no one would be paying attention to this if they didn't want to get better. And one of the things you have to remember is if you're going to a 12 step meeting, which is where I first heard this, you're not here because of where you've been. You're here because of where you want to go. Yes. So, you know, you know, forgiveness is giving up the hope that one day you're going to have a better past. You know, you're not going to have a better past. All you can do is you can learn the lessons from it and you can use that to make a better future. So make your future bigger and better than your past. And all the past is useful for is the raw material for you to build a better future. But I have seen people crawl out of the worst possible states that you can even uh, find fathomable. But the interesting thing about people that have crossed over, that have gone from the darkest places into recovery, they seem to go to the highest places in life. And the highest places doesn't necessarily, you know, I know a lot of wealthy people. I work with a lot of successful people. I work with a lot of famous people. And some of their their lives, if you really knew the silent battles they were fighting, most people in a million years would not want it at all because of the pain and the angst. So it's, you know, don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to where you are now and where you end up going and the progress you made. It's always progress, not perfection. And if you can get to the other side, you know, the, the, the amount of joy, the amount of happiness, the amount of connection, all of those things you were seeking uh, in, in addiction, uh, all of those things you were pursuing, those things come authentically when you actually do recovery. They will all show up. All of the shit that someone's chasing, the feelings and all that stuff will come uh, if you do the recovery in it, in it, and it may be the hardest thing you've ever had to do, but what is the alternative living a life of suffering? So, and if you can't, you know, if you feel like your life sucks and it doesn't work, go to an animal shelter, go to a homeless shelter, volunteer at a children's hospital, go to a burn unit, go into a 12 step meeting and help other people that are suffering. And that's how you will stop suffering. 
and immerse yourself in that shit. And if that means a minute at a time, do it a minute at a time, but you know, it's, it's all doable. And yes. both of you are sitting here talking about it because it is. It is. Yes. And we live a lame, uh, amazing lives because of it. So let's close up, Joe. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, my ego, my second guessing, my, um, you know, thinking I could outsmart it, uh, thinking I could uh, intellectualize my way out of it, um, you know, that sort of stuff. And I, I mean, I bumbled around. I spent, I, I, I took half measures, even with a lot of work for a couple of decades. So I was a real pain in the ass addict. It took me a long time. It took me a long time, but I didn't give up. Thank God. Beautiful. I got lucky. Whatever. <laughs> All right. So number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol and sex, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Uh, I never had it. No aha moment. Film. No, not one single moment that I'm like, ah, this is when the, the you know sky parted. I saw the light and I really felt the presence of God. Never had it. Uh, what I did, though, is a lot of incremental little tiny things that happened and kept showing up and kept leading to things, and I kept on it. I wish I would have had one of those moments. I hear addicts talk about that when that time, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I wish I had that, but I didn't. I just stuck with it. Okay, beautiful. And do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery or that you're currently reading? You know, the big book is always good because the whole fundamentals of 12, if you're definitely doing 12 steps, mm -hmm. the big book. And if you're in any 12-step group, their books, you know, Sex Addicts Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, any of their books are good. Codependence Anonymous is great. There's always codependency usually attached to addiction, um, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghost, yep. by, um, you know, Gabor by Mate. Uh, mm -hmm. Mate is uh, fantastic. Um, you know, the Art of War, which is not a recovery book, but it's written by Stephen Pressfield about resistance, and you're going to get a lot of that. In but but I think that's actually a great book. Um, yeah, um, um, my book <laughs> that's coming out is going to be great for yes. people in early recovery because if you just focus on the morning and your rituals, it, that that'd be a really good one for people to uh, utilize. Perfect, perfect. And number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Is there such a thing as a best suggestion? Uh, Give me a cool suggestion you received. <laughs> there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. Uh, so you have to be willing to, um, you know, be careful who you share certain things with. If in the process, it could injure yourself or others, but you're as sick as your secrets and purge your secrets, get rid of them. And, uh, that is probably the best suggestion because get out of the silent battles, mold and toxicity happens in isolation and darkness. You know, uh, the, I, I have a painting on the wall in here that a gal that I dated who I ended up getting into recovery herself because we really found out that she was an addict and, uh, she painted the same, which is, uh, recovery or sobriety didn't open up the gates of heaven to let me in, but it sure did open up the gates of hell to let me out. <laughs> oh man, I love it. All right. So question number five, but you know, it felt like you already answered it when, uh, right before I started asking the questions. 
Uh, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Yeah, I think I did answer. I, yep. You know, I, what I would say is read an open letter on my Genius Recovery site, and then do what it is I suggest there. Uh, you know, uh, suggestion is go to a meeting, admit that you're powerless over this, admit that you, you know, if you could control this, which you can't, if you're truly an addict. Uh, what you can control is taking steps because actually you can get to a point where you have control over your life, but what you don't want to do is the whole self will run riot. So, mm. you know, just walk into a meeting, admit to a friend, take what, if, if they're watching this right now, you know, take five or 10 minutes in journal. If you were, if, if you know, if you, were the most important person in the world to yourself, what would you tell you to do? Like if you had a friend who was in your mess and they were looking at you to advise them and you needed to save their life, what would you tell them to do? And probably what you based on what you just heard and whatever that is, you just tell yourself that and do it, you know, just, just do it. And the fact that you're listening to, to this right now, because they have to be, if they just heard it, uh, you're already you're doing the work. You're engaged, and so now it's getting your brain and your body to follow through. Getting your body to follow through with what your mouth in your head is telling you that it wants. And so, uh, understand that there's a lot of cool shit to learn, but when it comes to recovery, unlearning is more important than learning. Yes. So, what, what do you need to unlearn? You know, and what's one. Th- thing that you can do that will solve, you know, if you're not sleeping, get some sleep, you know, call, you know, call someone and help someone take the focus off you and your problems in your life that the, we, we live in a world filled with suffering, go and help reduce it for other people. And guess what? Your suffering is going to go to the wayside eventually. I love it. I love it. I love this right here. What do you need to unlearn? I love that question. I love it. I'm going to be using it on my coaching clients. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Joe, again, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. This has been phenomenal. And I got to head to the gym right now, so we're going to go train. So it was great spending time with you, O, and uh, I wish everyone the very best. So just have an amazing day, and I wish everyone just the super best with their recovery. Um, Today could be the last day of the way you used to be, so make it happen. I love it. All right. So, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.